there and saw for themselves what was going on in that young church um, and came back to Paul uh, with a very good report um, that the things were going well there, uh, especially um, with the fact that there was a lot of persecution, um, a lot of suffering going on in the church. And so Paul was incredibly encouraged by that, and so he quickly wrote another letter to them about six months later, uh, which became Second Thessalonians, still around the time of 51 to 52 AD, still one of the most early books that we have um, in the New Testament in terms of chronological order. So I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles up to Second Thessalonians, uh, which is page 827 in your pew Bibles. Page 827. <clears throat> We're going to start with verses 1 through 4. Uh, it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thess- Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So the first thing that Paul notices and encourages about is that a lot of the things that he spoke about in 1 Thessalonians, the first letter he wrote to him, that those people took to heart and that he's seen some change in them. If you remember um, from the first letter in chapter 3, verse 12, he said this, he prayed this for them. He said, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. So now you see in his second letter that Paul is, is grateful because there's evidence of that. There's evidence that their love is growing, that their faith is growing. And so that's encouraging. And he says, guys, I'm bragging about you to the other churches. And it's an encouragement to them, especially in light of the persecution and suffering that you guys are enduring. Because it's one thing to grow in faith and love when things are easy in life. It's another thing to do it when there's pressure, when there's stress, Uh, You know, when things are going on, you're suffering, there's trials in the midst of it. So there's something very pure and very exciting. And so Paul is saying, guys, way to go. Good job. Because Paul is excited because he knows that this is something they couldn't have done themselves. That God had to have met them and given them uh, the strength to endure and to have the kind of perspective that they had. And so the first question that I have for you this morning is this. Who is thanking God right now? Because your faith and love are growing. In your life right now, who is thanking God because your faith and love is growing? And whose life is being impacted right now because those things are true about you? That's certainly something to reflect on, isn't it? Who in your life is thanking God because your faith and love is growing right now? So after a pretty standard and encouraging greeting... Paul launches into some really heavy doctrine, and we're going to spend most of the rest of our time on verses 5 through 10 today, and, uh, and it's, it's going to be good and challenging. But first, I want you to, to tell me um, this statue right here. What is this a statue of, or what is it called? Anybody know? Okay, Lady Justice. And what, what can you tell me about the symbolism of the things that are on her, she's holding? What do those things mean? Point out some things and tell me the significance of those. Raise your hand and just like at school, we'll do this the right way, okay? What do you notice? 
Yes. Libra. What's that? The Libra balance. Oh, the balance. Okay, good. The scale. Okay, balancing. Balancing what? Good and evil. Good and evil. Okay. Yeah. It's blind and it's also got a sword. Okay. So there's blind, it has a blindfold on, and the blindfold actually wasn't put on the Lady Justice till the 15th century. That, and then that became the standard way of kind of showing her. So, so what does the, the blindness mean? What is that supposed to represent? That justice is blind. What does that phrase mean? What's that? Equality. Equality, impartiality, okay? And then the sword, the sword represents it's a double-edged sword. Okay, so there's a balance there of, of grace and truth, okay? So I want you to just kind of keep that in mind, okay, uh, of this whole idea of justice as we head into verses 5 through 10. <clears throat> it says this, All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. <laughs> well, there is a lot there. So we're going to tackle this kind of verse by verse here, one at a time, okay? So Paul, in verse 5, he starts out by telling them that the presence of persecution and trials is actually evidence that they're on the right track, that they're honoring God. And so notice what Paul doesn't say, right? He doesn't try to, to give them a, a plan to rescue them from the pain. And he doesn't say, well, you guys must be doing something wrong for, for you to be, you know, to have all this heat on you. Like, what, what's going wrong? Are you, are you not being good enough Christians? Are you not praying enough? He's not prescriptive in trying to, to solve their problems for them. And I say this because church folks today have a tendency to do just that. In our country, we don't have a very developed theology of suffering. And so when we see people in pain, we tend to want to swoop in and rescue them from that pain. Or we want to make assumptions that the reason that they're suffering or having trials or these poor circumstances in their life is because they're doing something wrong. They're not praying enough. They're not reading. They don't have enough faith. All of these things we kind of throw out there at folks. And it becomes a problem to be fixed as opposed to the normal part of being a follower of Christ. Because Jesus made it very clear that in this world you will have trouble. And the disciples, when they wrote in their letters, one of the things they kept saying, guys, is don't be surprised when you suffer. Don't be surprised when you're persecuted for the gospel. The gospel is offensive. People won't like it. And so you will be persecuted. And a lot of times when, when we are suffering, when we are in trials, it could be because you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing in following God. That could be a sign that you're on the right track, okay? And Paul is trying to encourage them by saying, guys, it'll be worth it in the end. Everything you're going through, all the suffering, it won't be in vain. And here's why, verse 6, because God is just. What does it mean to be just? What does 
the word just mean or imply? Or what kind of thoughts come to mind when you think God is just? What does that mean? Yeah. He's fair, okay. Anything else? Any other words, connotations come to mind? What's that? Understanding, okay. Yeah. He doesn't have favorites, okay. Yeah. He's what? Okay, what do you mean by that? Okay, yeah, so he has the perfect answer. His just is, is, is perfect. That the Webster's definition of just is acting or being in conformity with what is morally upright or good. So because God is just, because of his righteousness, all evil must be repaid. All evil must be repaid. So we don't have to take matters into our own hands. It's not up to us to to work out our personal vengeance against others who do us wrong because we can trust that God is just and he's going to handle that in the end. And so when people break God's law, it demands punishment. And God is not being vindictive here. He's not sitting around like, you know, oh man, I can't wait to obliterate those people that don't do the right thing, right? And in fact, his heart is the exact opposite of that. Look at this verse in 2 Peter 3, nine. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to come back, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Okay, so that is God's heart. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to repent. And so that's why Peter is saying, guys, don't freak out about the fact that Jesus isn't coming back yet. That's just showing his patience for humanity. He wants to give people an opportunity, a chance to turn to him, Okay. And we get the idea of justice in an earthly sense, right? We want and expect criminals to be punished when they break the law. Especially if they've harmed us or someone that we love, right? We want and expect criminals to be punished for breaking the law. How many of you would agree with that statement? Okay. (laughs) Most of us, right? That's an expectation that we have. But it's pretty amazing, though, that when it comes to us breaking God's laws, his laws to love him more than anything else in life, to love our neighbor as ourself, to to love our enemies, to forgive other people 70 times, seven times, right? To not gossip or slander others, to not lust or lie or steal or be jealous or covetous of other people's things. We would just as soon God show us a lot of mercy and grace, right? Right? Even though we know the Bible says that the wages of our sin is death and that we will reap what we sow, like we know those things are true, but in other words, when it comes to our punishment, we just assume God be unjust and not give us what we deserve, correct? How many of you would agree with that statement? (laughs) Yes, all the rest of you are, you really should agree with that statement, okay, if you don't understand what I'm saying, all right? It's a crazy contradiction, right? We want it both ways. We want the other guy to get his, but we we want God to be really kind to us when we don't follow his laws, okay? And most humans kind of operate like that. So because God is just, Paul says that he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, the Thessalonians, and give relief to you who are troubled. 
So there's the balancing scale of God's justice, punishment and relief or reward. And Paul is saying the idea is that, guys, trouble won't last forever. Okay? Sometimes God will relieve our trouble right here and now, during our life. Luke talks about this in Acts 3.19. He says this. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That there are these times in our life that we can go to God. And some, because sometimes the trouble that we're causing is self-inflicted. And that if we would just repent and turn to him, that he will, he will refresh our souls. He'll meet us in that moment and give us relief. Sometimes the relief doesn't come now, but it certainly will in, in the eternal sense. So later on, Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The eternal glory that we will have when we're in the presence of God far outweighs any momentary trouble that we're having here on earth. And it's something that we're going to have to wait for. Okay, so there's, there's relief sometimes here and now. There's relief sometimes in the future. <clears throat> and when will all of this occur? When will everything ultimately be set right? As followers of Christ, what do we put our hope in? Look at verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Angels. We believe that, right? As Christians, we'd better. <laughs> because it, it would certainly shape the way in which we live our lives each and every day. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. But there are twice as many prophecies about Jesus' second coming as there were about his first. That's how sure the writers of the New Testament are that Jesus is coming back. Okay? Twice as many prophecies. The first time he came humbly, he really kind of came hidden. You had to be really looking for Jesus. Right? He was born in a manger, insignificant birth to an insignificant family lived in an insignificant town, the son of, of a carpenter. There was nothing about his upbringing, about his appearance, the Bible says, that would draw men to him. He was hidden. But his return will be marked by glory. There will be no mistaking that Jesus is the son of God when he comes back. Okay, it says he's going to come in blazing fire, surrounded by angels. And I want you to keep in mind that this book was written in 52 A.D., Okay, like 19, 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is an early writing, like probably 30 to 40 years before Revelation was written about all the stuff that's going to happen at the end times. Okay, this was written 30 or 40 years before that. So this is how sure the early church was of the doctrine of Jesus' return. So if you have any doubt that Jesus is coming back, we should look at the Bible and say, man, the people that were lived during his lifetime and were around him, really believed that he was coming back. So we have to go back to that to gain confidence if we have any doubts that that's going to happen. Okay? So that answers how Jesus will come. Now let's look at who will be punished and who will be rewarded. Okay? First verse 6 said that he would give trouble to those that troubled the Thessalonians. So those that persecute the church are kind of high on God's list of I'm not happy with them. Okay? Because the church is his bride. The Bible says that Jesus gave his life for the church. So if you persecute the church, those that persecute the church will be punished for that. Okay? Verse 8, secondly, he says, he will punish those who don't know 
God. Notice that he doesn't say anything about believing in God. He doesn't say, say anything, you know, about those that don't go to church or those that don't tithe or blah, blah, blah. To avoid God's just punishment, it is required that someone knows God. And that, that requires a personal and intimate relationship with him. A personal and intimate relationship with him. And Jesus made this very clear when he was here. Check out these two quotes by Christ. He said, now this is eternal life, that they know you. He's praying to, to God, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Okay, this is what eternal life is, to know you. And then secondly, Matthew seven twenty three. then I will tell them plainly, so that before that, I'm sorry, I should have put more. It says, you know, people come to Jesus and say, hey, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's not about what you do for God, okay? It's, it's whether you knew him or not. And there are a lot of people sitting in churches today who think that they are cool with God. But the reality is, is they don't really know him. And they honestly aren't really trying that hard to know him. And that's the standard. That's the standard that God's looking for. And they're hoping that somehow their presence in church or their tithing or their good morals will get into heaven. But that's not what God said. He said he will punish anyone that doesn't know him. And to know somebody requires pursuit. You know, if you want to get to know that guy or girl that you're interested in, you pursue them. You're, you're after him. Man, every day you want to be with him. You want to be around him. Until you've been married for a long time, you know? <laughs> just kidding. Um, but you pursue them. That's what that relationship should look like. It shouldn't just look like a once a week thing or a, you know, whatever Sunday kind of works out for you to, to come to church or to read the Bible or to pray or to spend time with him. So there's two things so far, the persecu- people that persecute the church, people that don't know God, and finally the third group of people that will be punished, verse 8 again, says those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And really, guys, you can't really know God and then not obey him. I mean, those two things kind of go hand in hand. You see, the gospel isn't just an offer of salvation from our sins. The gospel isn't just an offer of salvation from our sins. It is a command to be obeyed. The gospel, the story of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is this invitation that God gives us all into a new story, that we can become a new creation. And rejection of that offer is disobedience because it was costly to the Father. It cost him something very precious for that offer to be given to you. And that's a serious offense towards God when you reject that offer. You see, it's easy for us as, as, as people, as believers, to, to really get excited about the relief part. You know, that God's going to give us relief from our suffering, right? We love those parts uh, in the book of Revelation that talk about heaven, about this time when there's going to be no more tears and no more suffering and no more death. And man, that sounds so comforting and awesome. And we get excited about that. But the punishment part, eh. People kind of struggle with that, you know? In fact, it's really disturbing 
If you read much literature about what's going on in the Christian world today, there are a lot of churches, a sizable number of people who would call themselves Christians who have really kind of thrown out the whole idea of hell, which to me just boggles my mind. Because if there is no hell, then why did Jesus have to come and suffer and die? I mean, that would be pointless. Many people today are so desperate to believe that God is love, but not necessarily just, too. Because if he is just, then we are accountable for our actions. And and people don't want to be accountable for their actions. They want to kind of do life on their own terms, define what's good and not good based on what they feel like. They want to be able to have God on their own terms. We're cool with God if he's giving us relief, but not so much if he's punishing us. And it seems like we have kind of selective memory about the nature of God, about who he is and why he came. So let me refresh your memory we can't ignore verses like Matthew 3, 11 and 12. And in this verse, this is John the Baptist. He's speaking. He goes ahead of Jesus. His role was to prepare people for Jesus. So he's, he's going out into the wilderness as he's telling people, repent, the kingdom of God is near. This Messiah, this Jesus is coming. And this is what he says. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork, which is kind of like one of those trident-looking forks, okay, is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he's saying Jesus is coming, and he's giving them this imagery of, you know, a farm imagery of what you do when you bring in wheat. You separate the good part from the chaff, the bad part. And he says that's what Jesus is coming to do. He's coming to separate his people into two parts. And one part he's going to put up into the barn or it's going to get to be with him for eternity. The other part he's going to separate and he's going to burn up with unquenchable fire. This, this was Jesus' purpose in coming, was, was to, to find out who's with him and who isn't. Okay? That, that's who he is. That's part of, of his nature. And then look at what Paul says about uh, this dude that did him wrong, all right? This is in 2 Timothy 4.14. He says, at the end of his letter to Timothy, he says, Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done, all right? So Paul understands or has this sense that God is going to pay people back for trouble that they've given him, his church, his people, okay? So guys, because God is just... He is deadly serious about rewarding people who are faithful to him. And he is deadly serious about punishing people who are disobedient from him. Both of those are equal parts of his nature. And he wouldn't be God if he didn't do both. That's what it means to be just. So we talked about when this punishment would ultimately happen, who it would happen to, and now we'll see what that punishment will entail Let's look at verse 9 again. It says, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. None of that sounds good, huh? I can't get a, uh, 
I'm probably not going to do justice to kind of trying to explain what everlasting destruction would be like, okay? But I, I think I can get my mind around uh, this whole idea or this sense of shut out from the presence of the Lord, what that would mean. And one way to think about that reality is that everything that describes the character and nature of God will be absent in hell. So everything about his character, love, forgiveness, grace, mercy, joy, peace, patience, kindness, hope, all those things will be devoid. Hell will be devoid of those things. None of those things will exist in hell. In addition, hell will be a place devoid of of the glory of God's might. That means that his power will not be there, his power to heal, his power to comfort or restore or redeem or transform. None of those things will be there. The absence of his presence means that there will be absolute evil all the time. That's the norm. That's what hell will be like, devoid of all things that would characterize the presence of God. Now, the other side of this story is that there are some amazing rewards described in verse 10. It says, On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And he's telling the Thessalonians, this will include you because you believed our testimony to you. So God will be glorified because of his holy people, because of who we become. So people, he says people will marvel at us and we will marvel at one another. When we stand in the presence of God and we are fully glorified in our heavenly bodies, we will look at one another and be like, no way. Dang, you turned out pretty good, right? I mean, we will be blown away at who we are and God will be glorified for that because it was his work that did all of that. And that seems hard to believe that that's who we're going to be, that's who our destiny is, but it's just as true as all the pictures we can picture of what the punishment of disobedience might look like. The opposite of the glory of our destiny is just as true, just as powerful. So as we conclude on this heavy topic today, I want to make some things absolutely clear to you, okay? And as you can imagine, it was rough writing this this week, right? This is not like a happy-go-lucky topic um, that you get to, to, to go through. So this was a labor for me. But here's, here's, man, just the amazing part of this, guys. The amazing part of this whole deal is that God made a way for every one of us to experience eternity with him, to be in his presence for eternity. He, he made it possible that all of us could experience that. He sent his son to die on the cross, and on the cross he took the weight, the pain, the burden of all of our sins upon his own shoulders, and he died for those things so that we could have access to a relationship with God, so that we could know him. And, and, and when God resurrected Jesus from the dead, what that communicated was that God had received that payment in full. His raising Jesus communicated that, okay, my, my wrath towards you, the justness for the, their disobedience, you've paid that. Now, now they're in right relationship and right standing before me. They've been justified because of what you did. If the offer is there, if we receive it, if we receive his forgiveness and follow him with our life, and both things have to be present. 
it's not enough to just accept Jesus as your Savior. He demands that we also receive him as a Lord. And what that means is that I surrender my life. I surrender my will, my plans, my desires, my control, all of those things over to God. And I say, God, you, I want your plans, your ways, your control over things in my life. And ladies and gentlemen, that is good news. That is great news. And it certainly answers the question kind of from the end of, of Justin's sermon last week in 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18. We kind of finished with these verses. Paul told us, guys, rejoice always. Pray continually. Be thankful in all circumstances because that is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And, and what I just shared with you is the why behind that. Why should we rejoice always? Why should we be grateful? Why should we pray in all circumstances? Because of what God did for us. Because we deserve death, but God gave us the offer of eternal life. He, he says, you can have your, your sin slate wiped clean by the blood of my son. Why wouldn't we rejoice? Why wouldn't we pray continually? Why wouldn't we give thanks in all circumstances if that is true? In the introduction to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 7, says this. <clears throat> it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and destruction. Instruction, I'm sorry. God is just. And we ought to have a healthy fear, a healthy respect for God's power. But the deal he's given us at humans is more than fair. He has gone to great lengths to, to save us, to make sure that we have this offer of being in his presence forever. But make no mistake, there will be punishment for those who ignore him, for those who ignore his warnings and reject the offer of forgiveness that cost him the life of his son. And there should be because that is the just thing to do. Now, my guess this morning is that most of you who are here would call yourselves followers of Christ. You would say that you are people that, <clears throat> that believe and you've received God's offer of forgiveness for you and that you are doing your best to try to follow him and give your life to him. And so a lot of people here this morning are probably kind of exhaling and taking a deep breath and being like, all right, I think I'm good. I think I got this. But we all know people in our life who aren't good with God. We all do. People who continue to kind of live by their own rules and kind of want God on their own terms and they're kind of their own judge about whether they're good or not or um, whether they're going to heaven or not or all those things. And they continue to ignore or are simply ignorant of God's justice. And guys, I need you to hear me. Remember, God's heart is that no one would perish. So the last thing he wants is for any of his children that he's created to be separated and shut out from his presence for all eternity. That's the last thing that God wants, right? But he's just. So if we are to be like him, if we are to know him and obey him, then our hearts have to be consumed, consumed, with the desire and a passion that nobody would be lost, 
If we're going to be like a God who that's his heart, then our heart has to be that. And that has to consume us. The knowledge that God is just should lead us to pray and to be in the word and to be living out this Christian life to other people in a compelling way and to share the good news with those who might not know him. We can't be like Jesus. We cannot say that we are followers of his. We cannot say that we know God and be indifferent to lost people in this world. God would be offended if we didn't warn the sinner. Correct? Two things that are true for me as it relates to this message of God's justice is first, I need to appreciate the unbelievable grace that God has shown to me. I need to be overwhelmed by how far he went to save me. And that knowledge, that reality needs to be the driving force of my life. And just as strongly, I need to lay down my life for those that are far from him, who are living outside of his protective love right now, And every morning, I need to wake up with a healthy reminder of those two realities. I am greatly loved, and I need to be thankful for that. But I got to remember that I've been called to be on mission to save the lost with Christ. He needs me. He wants to use me to be a part of that with him. And I have a responsibility as a follower of his to do that. So if we're just kind of sleepwalking through our days right now as a follower of Christ... And we're just kind of going through the motions here at church on Sunday morning, then we need to wake up. And so let this morning's message be a reminder to you at what's at stake. Right? There is a battle going on in this world for the hearts and minds of people, and it is an eternal battle that has eternal consequences and significance. And for us to sit idly by and just be okay with the fact that people would be shut out from the presence of the Lord forever, man, that's a pretty big consequence. <laughs> And we've got the answer. We know the answer. We gotta be sharing it. We gotta be letting people know. So what is God saying to you this morning? What has he put on your heart with this message and what are you going to do about it? That's the question we always need to be asking ourselves. Anytime we come before the word of God, we need to say, God, what are you saying to me? And what am I gonna do about it? Because to walk out of here indifferent or not changed or not stirred up by what was communicated this morning is not an option. It's not an option if you really have the heart of God because the heart of God is that no one would perish. And guys, as we come to the communion table this morning, I want to remind you there's really two things that are being communicated when we come. The first thing that's being communicated when we come and receive the body and blood of Christ is that we accept that. So if we come and participate in communion, we are saying, I receive God's, Jesus' body, his blood, as payment for my sin. I acknowledge that, yes, I believe that. I want to accept that as true for me. So if you're not there, if you don't believe that, if you're not sure about what you think about that, don't come. That's offensive to God. Because it cost him a lot to do that. The second thing it communicates is that you want to be broken and poured out so that other people might know him too. 
And so that's your end of the responsibility, right? There's the part that he did for you, and then there's the part that you're saying, I want to do that for others. I want to be broken and poured out so that other people might know you. And when we come and we take part in communion, we really need to be sure that in our heart that we are willing to communicate and accept responsibility for those two things. And if we're not, then it's okay to not come and participate in that and wrestle with why. (laughs) Why why have I not received that? Why do I not want to be a person that, that tells other people about Christ? And talk with God about that. Be sure you know what it is you're doing and committing and saying when you come and take part in this with us. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes of silence today to mull that over, connect with God, and then the ushers will come and dismiss you to come forward for communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, even when it's tough and when it's hard. And we're so used to living in a culture that just a lot of times only talks about or shows you know, one side of God or, or maybe just doesn't show a full picture of your character or your nature in a way that we can understand. It either comes across as God hates everybody or God loves everybody, and there's not this sense of balance that God desires for everyone to know him, to be in relationship with him. But to reject his offer is is a serious thing. And so, God, if there is anyone here today that has kind of lived their life apart from you, who couldn't confidently say that, yes, I, I know God, I want to live my life for him, that today would be the day that they would put their stake in the ground and say, I'm moving forward. I'm not living that way anymore. I'm casting my lot with God and the promise that he has for me of eternal life. And I pray that there would be people today that would grab hold of that and that you would do a new work in them, make them in the new creation that you say you will. And God, for others of us who maybe have kind of fallen asleep at the wheel of our responsibility as Christians, God, I pray that we would wake up this week. There, are, there might be people in our home. There might be people that um, we work with every day or go to school with or on our teams who are right now, their eternity is separated from you. And God, we have a responsibility to, to be Christ to them, to share Christ with them so that they would know you and experience everything that is good about your presence, Lord. Awaken our hearts, God, to this this battle going on in this world. God, help us to play a vital role in seeing your kingdom grow and, and people come to know the amazing things you have for them. God, hear our prayers right now.